Miss Mackintosh, my darling, Chapter Forty Five, Second Part. Yet had she ever died? For was she not a hooded rider on desert sands, and was not hers that great saddle of stone with foaming headland breaking through clouds? And was she not perhaps the greatest sheik or a lady with her face veiled, secretive as the sea Medusa no sunlight ever reaches? Her name was hyphenated like her life. There was a little doubt in Mr. Spitzer's mind, very little doubt. She being one who had known herself no more than a butterfly emerging from its cocoon, or an eye shining in the storm cloud. And so Mr. Spitzer certainly believed that it was best that there should be an end to this crystal gazing when the future was no more than a dead dream, even as the past had been. And yet he was not sure. Was it possible that she had been dead when she was still alive? That she should live now when she was dead, he asked, through all the after years. For he was always trying to establish balance. It seemed scarcely possible even to him with his memorial grief keeping itself alive. Her accounts were closed. There was a little more to add. It seemed that her great career was ended in darkness and a whirlwind even as it had begun. He was very certain that now a veil, a final veil, should be drawn over the life of this old maid who had written through storms and whirlwinds and whose heart was the heart of darkness and mystery. Ah, what glitter and a plume and loud alarum had once been hers in lands where there were few travelers. But was she not one now with universal darkness, with Stygian night, with the small sleep of unawakening death? Better that none should know what Mr. Spitzer knew. That none should know that love had prompted her because of her immortal guilt. A virgin's blood staining the snow. So she had cried. Or was it the sunlight burning through a cloud, lighting far pinnacles? The sunlight touching the snow with red and blue and green and gold, like the shot colors of bolts of multicolored silk unfurling, gleaming through snow clouds? She said many times, not knowing that it was Mr. Spitzer who overheard her last remarks, not knowing that it was he who listened with his discretion, his unbelieving heir, he who encouraged no remorse of the dead over the dead, he who believed that the dead should rest and that they should suffer no more, for they had paid their passage through this life and should come to their safe harbor now beyond these storms of life, these storms of death. She cried that she had lost her love, her acolyte, her beautiful girl, with whom she had traveled through the snow-pinnacled mountains upon some distant rooftop of the world. So that Mr. Spitzer could not but wonder, what world? And what were these two great ladies doing in these all but impenetrable mountains, he had vaguely fitfully wondered, not sure at all times that he had heard what he heard, since there was so much competition for his attention, so much din and so many loud screamings and so many whispers and glassy flute notes, since it was difficult to follow such pale threads as these, difficult to give his attention to that which was no more, particularly when the clouds thickened like fleece in the shepherd's hand and there were halos where there were no moons. No disrespect was shown by Mr. Spitzer's attitude. Not even indifference was shown. Certainly, there was no greater sympathy than his for all who had seemed to live in one way and had lived in another way. Perhaps its opposite. But his attention was diffused by his experience, both real and vicarious. Did he not live his brother's life? He had accustomed himself to snows and winds and clouds, waters and stars and fireflies, his own consciousness sporadic as a firefly in a cloud. Better that none should know, therefore, this deathbed scene which he had forgotten, the snow clouds forming when she died, snow clouds hissing like long-necked white birds of passage, invisible, but heard, heard like the wild geese flying over, cleaving the windy heaven at night, cleaving the dreams of the sleeper in his bed, for he, too, is ever in clouded passage. So Mr. Spitzer had thought, and indeed, not through his oblivion, but through his compassion, which was an altogether different matter, 
had almost dismissed these deathbed remarks as irresponsible ravings, even like those the wild birds of passage making inarticulate cries or the wild sea booming against jagged rocks in the clouds, great clouds piling up where no castles were and where no light gleamed at any window, for well he knew that at the last moment a totally or almost totally alien life might appear, that at the last moment many a being might change his mind as to what his life had been or would become, or might reveal a life which had been hidden underground before, and which would arise to the surface perhaps only for a glittering moment, as this person breathed his last, or which would arise perhaps long after he was dead, wrapped in the shroud of the air of Perhaps the deepest depths there is no individual or image, neither bird nor fish nor flower. Thus at the depths of sleep no face is remembered. All things have flowed into all things. A man may die each night, sinking into the drowned depths of sleep. The deepest sleep is dreamless. Perhaps the image exists only as it arises toward the rippling surface, even as the dreams of the dreamer come into being and exist only as he arises toward the surface of his awakening. And as a man dies, as he slips from the intangible moorings of, his, of this life, he sinks into his dreams before he reaches dreamless sleep. He hears great buoys ringing as he goes, so that Mr. Spitzer had been inclined to dismiss such windy utterances, attributing them to that delirium in which any man with his failing senses should engage without anybody else's check upon imagination or memory, the judgment of no observer being required. For who should know whether or not, after the last pulse beat, there is another pulse beat like the color of blood returning to the gray cloud? Certainly, Mr. Spitzer was in no position to know of these transcendent evidences, perhaps because they were his life. And why should this old captain not see butterflies of imagination or memory, or hear the trumpetings of angels upon distant root cloud roots, or angels rolling away the stones of tombs, perhaps mere pebbles covering water holes, hear even her own crying long after she had passed? For this was surely her privilege. It was what Mr. Spitzer liked to call the prerogative of the dead, the dead earned something, surely, perhaps only this doubt. Thus he doubted her. Perhaps this doubt was all there was. It was doubt of love, but perhaps it was also doubt of death. In view of so many hallucinations occurring in her last hour or long after the last clock bell had tolled, in view of so many shrill cries mingling with the sounds of the faint traffic horns in the distant city, which had once roared and clanged, but which seemed to have sailed upon a wave, perhaps when no one knew, sound seeming to ebb like the thinnest memory of the outgoing tide, like the distant surf line when the tide is almost still or frozen, when only the old trees lean tideward creaking like his own heart. Mr. Spitzer had naturally supposed that she spoke of some lost love of her imagination, and never of actuality, never of flesh and blood, that this was this phantom wandering through clouds, the white breasts, the snow-white limbs of this veiled virgin, with her face veiled by snow, white plumes like snow upon her brow. This beautiful lady appearing at the old suffrage captain's last hour, perhaps the hour after her last hour, for time was not time to those who died, and time touched not them, and they knew that these seasons, and they knew not these seasons of the year. Indeed, Mr. Spitzer supposed that out of great loneliness such as might com confront every dying man with his fear of the void of creation or his fear that something might be there, perhaps one sporadic light this damsel with the long white veils that appeared to accompany the old crusader upon another journey to guide him through the infernal mountains of frozen furies and great snow slides snow slides which might hurtle at a step like suddenly awakened tides and after this experience was watchman to the dying heart mr spitzer would surely say to any explorer returning in his ice-shrouded boat from his polar voyage to the magnetic north nothing so cold as boston on a winter night nothing so cold as these great mountains rising from a lady's heart 
Nothing so cold as the night that the star died, night that the great tray horses were frozen on the roads, night that this harbor was frozen like the frozen wharves, night that the coach was frozen in his box, night that the sailor was frozen in his shroud. So let be forgotten now that one memory by which she had lived, that feeble act of cowardice which motivated her heroism, and let it be forgotten that she was possibly the greatest literalist Mr. Spitzer ever knew, that she had lived her great romance, that she had done what others only dreamed of doing, let her be remembered for her noble acts, her many rescues and escapes, her self-forgetfulness, and all the speculative newspaper accounts of her. There was a blot upon this great captain in Ziskachon, a blot red as her blood upon the white snow. Best that none should ever see her as she was, or understand the monumental meaning of her last remarks, or see what he had seen, hear what he had heard. Best that none should know that she had died with a seashell at her feet, and had talked to a ghost, perhaps to many ghosts. Best that she who was already forgotten should be remembered for her public deeds, glories, honors, powers, the innumerable coal mine strikes she had helped to start, picket lines in which she had marched before gray mills, balloon ascensions into seas of roaring clouds where balloons were scraped by moons breaking into fire, launchings of suffrage ships like those great duchesses sailing at night from darkened ports, battles on foreign or domestic fronts, rides against great minarets and crescents and crescents trembling in water, desert marches and forays upon cities of tents moving like sails, clanging career, that there should be no publicity attending the last rites of her secret heart, that she should fade into veiled obscurity like the firefly fading into the glowing iceberg or some other star. The stars faded at dawn. Mr. Spitzer resented the brevity of man's memory of this great public hero, forgotten now as some poor foot soldier or foreign legionnaire who had perished in burning desert, sand, or some old crusader who was buried by a snowslide. But what image could he evoke when all was over? What effigy of her tomb, which he was always planning in his amorphous mind and yet could never decide upon, would be neither the anchor nor the heart? Granite should not give an image to that which was the cloud. As time could not contain her, it would organize the pickets around the old town clocks. No image could approximate her memory. No clock could keep the time for her, even though it was the time kept by the moon comb, the jellyfish, the starfish gleaming on the timeless sand under the stars gleaming like starfish. Hers was not even the figurehead of the ship which had gone down. No sundial marked her hour. What image could restore the memory of this unknown love? Would it be the mountain climber with his moon-white dogs rolling at his feet, though only the seashell had roared at hers? Sky trooper, the ski trooper, shrouded in white, poling to heaven or returning to snowbound earth? The veiled eunuch with the black mist of a forgotten dream around his face, where one unextinguished spark burned? Life being that which takes the longest dying even in a eunuch's heart. The beautiful girl who had been the desert rose or nymph or fawn, the mysterious sheik of some forbidden seraglio never reached by man, the rooster thief, the blacksmith, or this old New England war horse crowned with a wreath of flowers because, though she seemed ugly and old, hers was the victory, was her trumpet made of melted spurs. Sometimes Mr. Spitzer thought that over her grave there should be, in memory of the fact that she had been a great traveler, perhaps only a milestone marked, twelve miles. It was odd, but he thought of her whenever he came to a milestone thought of her whenever a clock struck. He did not know how she should be remembered when she was forgotten. Yet though she had been this great firebrand of suffrage, burning bright as a bright star in the wind, something nearer to earth than most stars, as are the stars when one has climbed a mountain top, no doubt. But certainly nothing had ever seemed stranger to Mr. Spitzer than that men should exert themselves to climb mountains, perhaps for no purpose whatever, but to reduce, by an infinitesimal distance, the distance between themselves and the stars to bring the stars or heavenly bodies nearer to earth. 
Sometimes they risk their lives for this. Sometimes they perish in the roaring clouds, the avalanches, the mountains, hurtling like the clouds. The mountaineers lost long ago stared out from behind great crystal walls. It seemed to him a great unholy effort when merely by reaching his pole he could bring down the stars as some old pigeon polar might pole the pigeons homeward through the evening clouds. Pigeons of opalescent blue and green and rose and gold. Pigeons many-colored as Joseph's coat. Pigeons glowing like the glowing clouds, the fading and trembling clouds through which they traveled, returning like lost souls to the chimneys and roofs. Certainly nothing made him sadder than that men of that civic pride and that sterility which built no stone monument to the living or the dead, should chase pigeons from city streets and roofs and legends. Pigeons, obolescently shining like souls, dead souls returning, souls who whispered over the slate roofs, for did not pigeons make waterlogged Venice beautiful, more beautiful than beauty ever was when it was inanimate, casting their shadows on moon-colored paving stones and waters and clouds, roosting on angelic wings and on the reflections of wings on waves, roosting on the heads of gondoliers who carried the dead to their temporal resting place. Here in old Boston, town pigeons roosted on clock hands and clock pendulums. Pigeons had stopped an old town clock. Perhaps they were his soul, the fragments of his spirit, for only the psychic life was important to him, especially when the physical life was gone. And he was but an old pigeon roost himself, and filled with pigeon murmurings and shiny wings, whispers of voices, carrier pigeons seeking him out through clouds, some with billets due from the dead to the dead. Worryings, memories forgotten and returning, almost all returning. There sometimes coming to him those pigeons none had ever seen on earth before, or the pigeon with the red cross upon its snow white breast, the bleeding heart, the snow white turret. And if there were some and if there sometimes came passenger pigeons now extinct, though they had once darkened the heavens over this wilderness, roaring, clanging like church bells and clouds, making a twilight of sunlight, who was Mr Spitzer, dreaming among the shadows, to question the moon, the stars, the waters, and the clouds? to ask how this could be, to be the skeptic of another's life. He was that toll-keeper who asked no questions, letting all things pass. Nothing frightened him so much as a man's loss of memory or the emptiness of that fame for which he himself had lived, writing his silent music passing into silence before it was recognized. Could he say that this great lady should be buried with lonely cannonades or pomp and ceremony at Arlington, the president mourning her passage, for she had died a hero's death in some forgotten year? perhaps according to the Antolian calendar, or perhaps in some forgotten Ramadan. When had she heard the winding horn? But she had been a coward, trembling when a snowdrop melted, and he had composed that music to be played to the sound of thunderclaps and rain, and the watery stars burning low near earth when earth unthawed itself, when flowers burned and garlanded mules with caissons and riders' horses did not accompany her to her last resting place. Nor had there been mourners lining the streets and flags flying a half-mast and black banners hanging from the roofs as would have been if he had had his way. If he could have carried out his ideas and intentions as well as her indomitable spirit had carried out hers. If he had been also the literalist, one who did whatever he dreamed, one not confused because he was become his brother. Perhaps she should have been buried in the tomb of the unknown soldier, lighted by a perpetual flame. For she was unknown, and no one knew in which battle she had fallen, guarding that wet windy ramparts. Perhaps hers should have been a desert tomb, a mountain tomb, or a tomb under water, a turret sinking beneath the wave. Should she not be claimed by the courtly French, claimed by the heathen Turks? Should she not be remembered by the Greeks and Medes, the Persians, the ivory kings rattling their bones? Should she not be greeted by great Romans, their cities of tents dissolving when the sand blew? Mr. Spitzer would have liked to have said to them, Here was the noblest Roman of them all. She knew her Carthage. She was covered by the desert sand, but there was no one to hear him. 
there was no one but Mr. Spitzer to mourn the passing of a dying soul, and she was buried in that gray New England churchyard, hearing only the sound of the water running through a rusted spout, or the leaves falling rustling over her grave, or a snowflake melting in a burning cloud, as Mr. Spitzer came to his last understanding of her, knowing only when she was dead that she had lived and loved and lost. He thought of her in winter hurricanes, when he was pushing away the stars with his cane, when he was going upon his lonely paces, brushing with his sleeve against the dust, deathless dust of a dead planet, tapping lampposts reverberating in a long row behind him, lighting lamps in a sleeping city where only he was awake, or where perhaps there was only one other distant wayfarer, a figure blurred by the longer rolling sea fog, perhaps a toad with eyes like lamps. Light revealed not what the darkness hid, and winter brought not to life that which the spring had killed. She lived perhaps only in his faded memory of her dead heart, and was he not dead who remembered her, who heard a faint thumping under the frozen earth? And what witness was the dead to the dead, what reliable witness, Mr. Spitzer asked, with spendthrift gleaming through a distant cloud or crescent moon, falling as he spoke to no one li to no known listener? Surely she had sinned against her finest sense of honor, or against the code of chivalry as might many another lady who had gone to fight great dragons showering golden seeds, great krakens curling around the helms of boats and dragging them to nether seas with veils of starlight, great minotaurs and Chinese lords and shahs of Araby and husbands whose wives abandoned them when they were sleeping, wives who slept with other loves as snowflakes fell upon their hair. One other great lady had challenged icebergs, driving against them with her sword as they reared, rose, plunged, challenged her, bellowed, roared with crests of foam, with wakes of clouds, drove against her as if they knew where they were going, as if great glaciers could make up their minds and announce their intentions and veer from their courses as she veered from hers, veered like the wild swans flying through clouds, the wild snow blowing in her face or falling from a mountain top, her eyes burning like two stars or one star in its reflection in the icy glare. Could she not be forgiven now, or could she not forgive herself? As a matter of fact, Mr. Spitzer thought that though it might be that the great things moved by law, perhaps the smallest things were indeterminate, that only they escaped this wheel of fortune, or the sealed orders of that fate under which man had sailed and which was determined long ago and was inscrutable, that perhaps only some delicate rainbow-colored butterfly, gleaming through the mist or far ripple of water streaked by moonlight or snowflake, like a web of lace laid upon the mouth of the dead, could escape this universal cloud, freezing now like marble hills. That perhaps the tiniest perception might be free to wander outside with freedom to move, change, alter its course, as if it were a thought, thinking, after the thinker, was no more.